An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're very pleased to have as our special guest, Chris Pierce. Chris is an American singer-songwriter who's opened for Neil Young, B.B. King, Seal, and a host of others. The song he co-wrote, we can always come back to this, hit number one on Billboard's Blues Chart. His work's been featured in numerous films, television series, and advertising campaigns, from the controversial Don Cheadle Sandra Bullock film credit to a Banana Republic ad campaign. Chris does some 100-plus gigs a year. It was listening to him one of those part of the Black Opry residency at Symphony Space in New York that made me want to invite him on to the Outside In podcast. Chris sang, played guitar and harmonica brilliantly. His songs were poignant and supremely crafted. But, and I know this will sound corny, it was the emotional experience that made it different and special. Chris enveloped the audience with authenticity and empathy. I have very rarely felt that emotional connection between musical artist and audience as deeply. And here's the objective proof for my subjective feeling. You know how at the end of the concert, an artist will say they have a merch table and be glad to sign CDs after the show? In an audience of 150 or so, normally 15, 20 people show up. After Chris's performance, I think it was somewhere more like 100 or so, 75 or 80% of the audience. We stood online waiting our turn to buy something, to take a selfie, or just to talk. We wanted to take something home to remember that feeling. So welcome, Chris. Thank you, John. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you for that, uh, this incredible introduction. So before we really start, I've heard your music called everything from blues to soul to folk to black Americana. I know musicians hate arbitrary classifications. But for our podcast listeners who may never have heard your music, how would you describe it? Oh, well, uh, feel something now music. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I have influences uh, that are deep in American tradition, um, all the way back to some African tradition uh, from some of my ancestors, um, which go back to you know, sounds, folk sounds, blues sounds, gospel sounds, um, into what they're currently calling Americana, which is just kind of a big pot of gumbo, jambalaya. It's just a little bit of a little bit of uh, what's good in the kitchen. You throw it all in there, and it feels good. Um, that's basically what I do. I write what's on my mind. I, I, I don't really, I don't put myself in any boxes, and. Uh, Try to just break the walls down and, and really share a piece of, of my experience and, and the experience of folks around me. Let's get into it. What's your origin story? Where and how did you grow up? What two or three experiences stand out in your memory 
to help form you into the person you are today? Yeah, I come from uh, Pasadena, California is where I'm from. Uh, my mother and father met at Michigan State University. My, my mother was dating one of my father's best friends, and he came out to California and said, hey, man, look, look after my girl. And, and he said, okay, I got you. And they fell in love. And um, my mom came out to California first. My dad followed her. My mother uh, was a young teacher and started teaching elementary school, eventually went on to teaching uh, at-risk high school students uh, for about 40 years. My father had a degree in cytology, uh, but really wanted to be out here to uh, get into the film business. That was his main interest. And uh, he dabbled in that and got some production jobs and some studio jobs. Um, and um, I grew up just surrounded by good music, vinyl records, my parents having friends over, um, seeing how music can change a room, feeling that from the time I was really young, um, and seeing how music can quickly change the feeling of really intense situations, too, which my parents had some of those. And that you put a record on and, and kind of like it was, it was washing everything away for a minute. Uh, and so I, I really um, had that feeling inside of me uh, from the time I was small and kind of really recognized the power of music. A few things that stand out, of course, are singing in, in church when I was really young and rocking back and forth and getting us to get my first solo. Um, Another thing that really stood out for me was an experience with my mother when I was seven in a bank uh, in our hometown, reaching into her purse uh, to get a dollar out for some candy and having the security guard tackle me. My mother's white. I'm uh, biracial. And so that was a really eye-opening experience for me of really the uh, what human beings can do to each other and kind of how I was looked at even at a young age. And then, uh, really, I was just surrounded by incredible musical experiences. I did, I excelled in school. I had a mother teacher uh, for a mother who was at home, so uh, she really helped me uh, put education first. But eventually, I ended up going to uh, USC and getting the Ella Fitzgerald Scholarship to study music. And the rest is, you know, the rest is the journey. <laughs> you mentioned being biracial and your mother is black. Is white, sorry. Mm. Sometimes in concert, you introduce a cover you can do of the Betty King song, Stand By Me, with a story of why it mattered to you as a kid. Can you tell us that story? Stand By Me was a really heavy one because I, I saw it in different, uh, really changed the dynamic in different situations and the, and the feeling in the room. And when I was young, I was about five, um, I woke up to my mother screaming and there was a cross burning on our front lawn. And, um, and so our house was really tense right after that. They were both upset and had ways of showing how upset they were di differently, uh, as we all do. Um, and then shortly after that, uh, the, what we think were the same guys uh, tried to break into our house through my bedroom and had a really hard time sleeping for years after that, uh, from that experience and being half asleep and uh, just the the intensity of that situation and the feeling of how 
my parents who loved each other deeply were were being targeted like that. And I felt like I was part of that target that I couldn't sleep alone for years. And I'd, I'd sleep, I'd sneak into my parents' house and try to sneak on the foot of the bed and they'd calmly uh, take me back into my room. And that's the song that I went to over and over and over again for both of them to sing to me. I remember mostly my dad because he had a beautiful voice, uh, beautiful baritone voice singing that song to me slowly, softly, until I fall asleep. Um, so that that song is a lot, a lot of uh, soulful meaning in my life. It's a song I still sing to myself in some times of, of trouble. You mentioned overcoming some stuff to get to USC. One of the things we saw, I think you were 15 and you were diagnosed with sclerosis that's a, a condition in your ears, often lead to deafness. Um, I know they had surgery that restored partial hearing, but you perform songs for a living. I mean, you sing, um, and you have partial deafness. Um, that's got to be a significant issue. How do you deal with it? <laughs> well, how much time do you got? Um, I, I really just, it's, it was, I guess the best way to answer this is if there's anything that can test a musician, um, that the universe can say, how much do you love this? It's going, going deaf. And I love it. And I was willing to fight for it from the beginning. Um, it was a really dark time. It was, uh, felt static and isolated before I had the surgery. And then after the surgery, it was an uphill climb. And that was, yeah, that was 35 years ago when I had the first surgery. And I have always been willing to fight for it. And it's turned into almost like a superpower for me. I, I feel like I listen differently. I read between the lines. I sing between the lines. I, I reach from a place in my heart that I don't think I would if I could hear everything I was doing or hear everything around me. I'm constantly wondering what else is out there. What other sounds can I make? How can I push myself? And it really creates this feeling of never being satisfied, um, which I think is a really great thing for an artist <laughs> to always be searching and to, to not get to a point where, oh, this is the peak of my sound. I'll never know what that is. And I think that that keeps me reaching. Uh, I never know how people hear me. I'll never hear records the same way as others or hear live music the same way as others. And I think there's a lot of good in that. And I think that struggle uh, really keeps me going in a lot of ways. When we opened, you said that your music was sort of a, a gumbo. You take the good stuff and put it in. And now you're saying that you're looking for yeah, what's new? What's out? And obviously, that attracts a lot of other musicians. I mean, I mentioned you worked with Neil Young and BB King and Seal. You've also worked with, from Sonia Dada to Alison Russell, Aaron Neville, Tutu Mangels, Sonny War, Rodrigo and Gabriela, Sarah Barillas. I mean, have they said to you what it is about your music that makes them want to work with you? Yeah, I, I I don't remember anybody really. I mean, I remember certain things. Like, I remember Neil Young telling me this past summer, um, just keep doing exactly what you're doing. To me, 
it that that meant the world. I even joked to him that I was going to get the, that tattooed on my <laughs> on my arm. Uh, keep doing what you're doing, 2023, Neil Young. Um, but I I think over the years it's a combination always of of I think folks bring you out because they like the feeling of being around you. Um, I think they bring you out because your songs uh, will speak to their audience. But I think most importantly, um, I feel like folks will bring you out to open for them and play with them because they feel something uh, when they listen to your music. And I feel like with me, I always give everything I have. I, I, I don't really, I don't leave anything at bay. And I feel like folks recognize that. I feel like when, when Sarah Bareilles and I used to do coffee shop gigs together, she recognized that. And we were sitting next to each other trading songs in front of 15 people. Uh, I feel like B.B. King recognized that in, in allowing me to come out every night and take a bow with him at the end of the show. And I, I really am just completely honored by anybody um, who would say, Chris, I want you to play with me or open my show. I'll always entertain that because to me, it means that they, they get, they get where I'm coming from and not everybody does. Um, and so it's, it's, it's those, those rare folks out there that, that say to themselves, I really get this guy. And I think other people should hear him too. That to me is always, always just a, dis a distinct honor. And so I can't do anything but get out on that stage when I have those opportunities and give everything I can because I know that it's okay with them. Uh, like Neil said, just keep doing what you're doing. Um, that's the attitude of everybody that I've ever opened for. Uh, and that's a really, really, um, for, I, feel, I feel very fortunate by that. I've always heard of the music business described sort of like a bar bill. You know, superstars at one end and very talented people who for one reason or another don't make a living at it at the other end. And you're neither of those. You know, headline the stadium tours, but you make your living playing music and writing songs. How well does the music industry work for you, a working musician, as we record this today towards the end of 2023? Well, I, I love that. I love that analogy about the the barbell first. I always go back to this uh, Hunter Thompson quote that the music business was music business is a shallow money trench where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. And then there's a bad side. Um, but with that said, I I really have just found a way to navigate again by leading with my heart by being smart, um, knowing my rights as a songwriter as a musician doing the work. It's not just writing songs and getting on stage. It's research. It's finding where the money's hiding for, for things that I've done. Uh, and it's literally hiding for a lot of songwriters that you have to go online. You have to know where to go. You have to take the time to fill out spreadsheets. Um, and a lot of us can actually get money that will really help with, uh, with our, our, our bills uh, by doing that but it takes time. And so I do the re research to, to I, I've been a member of ASCAP for 25 years. Um, I'm really involved there. I'm a member of, of the Grammys, uh, 
the Recording Academy. I, I vote there. Um, I know about Sound Exchange. I know about uh, radio and television. Um, I know how to read the statements that come in. Uh, I'm always trying to keep my finger to the pulse of what's happening, what's new out there that I may be missing. Uh, I'm just starting to get on Substacks, which I think would be a great way uh, to. There's only a couple great, a couple big musicians on there. Patty Smith right now, and um, who's a guy from Wilco? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the guy from Wilco. Um, anyway, Substacks I think is going to be a really cool thing um, and a way to make money on the, like a social media way. Um, of course, the Spark ne Network, who I've been involved thanks to Nick Harcourt for. Uh, a few years as ways to uh, to to have more folks listen to me and to be inspired by just great thinkers um, and folks that are really out there doing things in a different way and pushing the envelope. And that's, I think, what you have to do as a musician. You have to think outside the box, but you also have to know what's there and be willing to um, to fight for it and learn about it and uh, and kind of do all the paperwork because if you don't, um, you'll be out on tour and, and there's, there's money that should be in your mailbox when you get home that won't be there. Um, so I, I look at it as do what you love and be smart about it and, uh, try to keep your finger to the pulse of what's going on out there. I guess it would be the quick way to say it. I want to just lift the curtain a minute for the listeners of. Chris mentioned Nick Harcourt at Spark Network. Nick is a legendary DJ from LA. Um, 10 years did morning become eclectic and, and a bunch of other things. He's also today slumming and is our engineer, um, which is uh, a, a little bit <laughs> like having Kevin Durant be your ball boy. So um, thanks a lot, Nick. Um, Thank you, Nick. You mentioned uh, you know publishing rights and everything. You obviously write all types of songs. Some of them have a really strong social justice point of view. Um, I think that's probably what Neil Young was referring to when he said, just keep doing what you're doing. Um, they may be sung with a quieter, every man, working man protest point of view, a la Woody Guthrie, but they pack a punch like Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit. Does it feel different when you're writing and performing songs like that, songs like American silence, or it's been burning for a while compared to when you're writing or performing a love song? Um, I feel like the songs all feel urgent to me, whether it's a, a love song or a, a song of, uh, of social justice and change. I, I, with that said, I deeply, deeply believe in the unifying power of music. And I believe that music can cut through um, the static and isolated feelings that we all feel on an everyday basis and bring us together even for a moment um, in, the, in a vibration together. Music is one of the only things I can think of that can do that. And so to be a steward of that and, uh, and a conduit of some of the stuff that comes through me, I do not take it lightly. So I entertain it all. Um, I even just woke up with I woke up with five or six children's songs completely written in my head uh, earlier this year and wrote them all down, rushed out of the bed and, and uh, wrote them all down. So I, I get all kinds of ideas. 
And I think the urgency of, I think they all feel urgent to me and they all feel important. I, I kind of use this analogy sometimes, you know, the songs, I don't have children and I feel like songs are like kids where if I had a bunch of kids, I'd love them all. I'd, I'd, I'd they'd all be different. Um, but I'd love them all the same and I'd, I'd, I'd want them all to have the same opportunities and, uh, even with their uniqueness and their differences and, and different paths. And I feel that way with songs. I write them um, in hopes that they're heard and discussed and dissected and felt, um, because I feel like there's a reason that that song made its way through um, and and taught me empathy. The songs teach me empathy over and over and over again, and teach te they teach me how to be vulnerable. They teach me how to be compassionate. They teach me how to really live with my heart on my sleeve and be available emotionally, uh, which I think is one of the really keys to living. And the fact that I get to do music to express that is really important to me. When we last talked, you mentioned you have a project that's more expansive than one song. I forget whether you called it a song cycle or an opera. Mm. Um, oh. Tell us about that. What's it about? How's it going? Well, I, st I started writing a, a, what we're calling a blues opera with my good friend Mark Malone, who lives in Vancouver on a boat up there. Um, we started writing it in 2000. 15, I want to say. Um, and we just started writing about this. It's a, really a story about redemption. And it follows a kind of a street preacher in the 1930s-ish uh, who goes from town to town. He has a checkered past. He, he, does, uh, he does all kinds of things to keep it going. But he believes in the things he's talking about. Um, but he also is trying to survive every day. So he's, he's playing cards and shooting dice and and wandering around and doing this as kind of living across between the life of a street hustler and a preacher. And um, eventually he, he wanders into this place called Madam Joy's House of the Unusually Friendly Companion and falls in love um, and convinces uh, his love to go on the road with him. He soon quickly finds out that she doesn't like the road, that that the life of a traveling preacher, musician, hustler is not the life for her. Uh, and she cheats on him. He sees her cheating with a rich man. He shoots and kills them both. Uh, he's really sad about this, uh, especially about her. But he has to go on the run. He's a black man in America in the Deep South. So he goes on the run and he runs on the Mississippi line um, until he's eventually caught. I'm sent to cell block D, sent to the gallows stair, and is hung. Um, he wakes up in hell. He sees the devil, and the devil is this man with perfect hair and cufflinks, and he decides that he might be able to make a, a, a wager with him. Uh, and, uh, and I won't tell you how it ends, but it's, uh, it's, it's really a song, uh, the uh, or a song cycle that follows the journeys of the Reverend Tall Tree. Uh, that's his name. I am stunned into silence that is uh, certainly as convoluted an operatic uh, plot line as, you know, Verdi or anyone else going to come up with. And, and I love the blues, so I'm just waiting to hear it. 
Uh, let's finish with some short questions and answers. How do you relax? Uh, well, relaxing is 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 usually a. I'm a I'm a pretty laid back person in general, so I'm kind of relaxing all the time. But to really go into deep relaxation, that's getting really tough for me. I feel like time's getting shorter, and I feel like there's a lot to do. So I kind of force myself to do things once in a while. I meditate. I try to do a little bit of meditation every day. I, of course, relax by just sitting and strumming on a guitar, playing a piano or that kind of thing. Um, it's hard to, for me to kind of, you know, when I pick up a guitar, it's like, it's, it's hard for it not to feel like I need, it needs to end. There needs to be an end result. I need to write something or that kind of thing. So I try to really get into that meditative space when I need to relax with that. Uh, I walk my dog, I hike with my dog, uh, uh, take road trips with my wife. I love to cook. Cooking is very, very therapeutic for me and relaxing. And, oh, and I, I just, I love to source the ingredients too. That's also uh, very relaxing. I love to get out there and really think about what I'm going to make and source the, figure out where, where everything is and where the best stuff is and how to get a good deal on it and how I can make the best kind of work piece of art with with what i'm cooking with uh yeah those are some of the things I, I like to read what are you reading right now uh i've been actually rereading a book called the big c by langston hughes um and it kind of follows his journeys in paris and in harlem in paris he was a cook at a kind of like a nightclub and it talks about all of his kind of talks about kind of his dealings with you know, not only the wait staff but you know drunks and dope fiends and artists and everybody you know in Paris and that part of his life and then it talks also it it goes into some of his journeys of being one of the leaders of the Harlem Renaissance in New York so it's a really really dynamic and diverse book and I hadn't read it since for about 30 years uh, and I just recently saw it on my bookshelf and said you know I think I was probably really stoned in college when I read this, and I don't remember a lot of it. So let me read it again. There, <laughs> a, a fraught question to ask a musician. Yeah. But what sort of music do you listen to the most often? What artists? Well, uh, I I listen to a lot of jazz music. Um, I listen to a lot of music without lyrics. Because music that has lyrics, I, I, I start working, and, and I'm, I, it's hard for me to relax when I'm listening to music with lyrics. So I listen to jazz at home, uh, a lot of kind of straight-ahead stuff and bebop stuff, uh, Coltrane and Parker and stuff like that. Um, I also listen to, to classical, and a lot of people don't know that. I don't think I've ever been really asked this question, what do you listen to? But I I have a few things in common with Beethoven, um, with my my hearing um, and that kind of thing. So I love listening to to Beethoven. I listen to the classical station KUSC a lot. Um, and then usually when I'm like at nighttime, getting ready to go somewhere, 
and definitely in my car, um, I listen to local radio. I listen, you know, I listen to the great Nick Harcourt to hear what's out there. That's morning time. I listen to, uh, um, to a lot of podcast stuff as well. But yeah, so I'd say jazz, local radio, classical podcast. You uh, ever have a desire to take your skill set and apply it to the straight ahead jazz and sort of write vocalese lyrics to it? I have actually, you know, Eddie Jefferson and and uh, is one of my favorites. John Hendricks, Lambert Hendricks, and Ross, of well, course. Uh, I studied all those folks in college. I was a vocal jazz uh, major, and you know, I I really think at some point I will do an album, a uh, jazz album, and I don't want it to be just a. a I don't want to, I want to do something unique and I don't think there's a lot of vocalese out there right now. Um, so that would be really fun to transcribe some solos and I'd love to maybe transcribe some contemporary solos of some folks that are, are out there doing it now, like, like Lambert Henderson Ross were doing, like Eddie Jefferson was doing, um, kind of find the James Moody of, of today and, and rock, uh, like a Moody's move for love or a joy spring, put some lyrics to it and, and uh, make an album like that. That would be really fun. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you be? I've never been to New Zealand. I've always wanted to go. Um, there's a great food and wine festival there that happens, I think, around this time. Uh, on the, I believe on the south, south side. Um, and I've always felt like New Zealand would be a place that would be a spirit, really spiritual, peaceful place for me. Um, so that's, I think that's where it would be. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? One thing. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm not a very good rule follower. Uh, how about three things in one sentence? <laughs> I'd say to, to lead with empathy, to to be of service to others, and and to have an independent mind. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik with our special guest, Chris Pierce. Um, Chris really is a, an amazing person to see in concert. If he's touring by you, do yourself a favor and go see him. Chris, thanks so much for joining. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. Great talking with you. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukomnik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor O'Higgisa, John Lukomnik executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.